Well, it's neat that Bob's presiding and Mike might just uh, pray and read the scriptures for us because three of us um, uh, just returned from our two-week missions trip to Kazakhstan. It was indeed a <clears throat> very enriching time of ministry. I'm still somewhat jet-lagged, even after a whole week. I was working at my parents' store this week, and I don't know how many times I said da to the customers. That's Russian for yes. So I've seen that so often in Kazakhstan. A real enriching time. <clears throat> it was a privilege for, for us to uh, rub shoulders with these men and many faithful believers there in those churches. You hear their testimonies. You fellowship with them. And you talk about having no agenda but Christ alone. These be- believers truly live that out. They truly modern, modeled, sincere, and pure faith. And I know Bob and Mike will agree. Um, for the rest of our lives, we'll remember them. And their faith has definitely challenged and stirred our hearts. A common testimony by the men at the Institute. We heard this phrase over and over when we asked them why they were at the Institute. These men traveled and came great distances be part of this class. They've left their family, their children. They've left their jobs, their main source of income for many of them to commit to a year and a half of studying the Word of God. And when we asked them what was their motivation behind coming to the Institute, we heard over and over again, they said, I want to be used by God. I want to be used by God. I want to be useful for God. And as we sat down with them and heard their testimonies, I mean, they had incredible testimonies. I want to share just three of their testimonies with all of you. And I have um, mugshots of them, if you will, to, to present to you. You know, um, testimonies, are, testimonies are good, but to see their eyes, to see their faces is um, so much more powerful. We're not doing a drama or anything. We're not seeing a movie clip, so, so don't get afraid. Um, First guy's name is Otto Jean. He is the only Igor in the Institute. And um, he was telling us how he ran away from home when he was seven years old. And he lived on the streets since he was seven. <clears throat> to survive, he, he, got, he was robbing um, people, went to homes, stores, businesses. And he had a group of guys that he would rob and steal with. And he was telling us how depraved they were. After they were successful in their theft, they'd come back and they would pray to God, pray to Allah, thanking Allah for protecting them from getting caught um, while they were stealing. He got caught actually several times with the prison, numerous times. And one time while he was in prison, a drug addict who had been addicted to drugs for 12 years became a Christian, was delivered from his addiction, and was clearly saved. It was known by all in the prison, and that man shared the gospel to him, and that's how he became a believer. And he, we asked, Bob and I asked him why he came to the Institute, and he said, I want to be used by God. I want my people, Igor, people to know Christ. I want them to hear the gospel. The second man is Zarchubai, and um, he was an imam. He was a leader of the mullahs. 
So he was John MacArthur of Islam in Kazakhstan, meaning he was leader of the um, um, mullahs, which are pastors. So he was overseeing um, uh, mosque leaders. He said his wife became a believer, and when he found that his wife became a Christian, he beat her constantly, continually, beating her, trying to force her to recant her testimony and to turn away from Christ. In one such episode, he became paralyzed, and he went to the hospital, and it was in the hospital that someone came, gave him the Bible, he read it, he cried out to God, and God saved him. Again, when we asked him why he was at the Institute, he said, because I want to be used by God. Well, the third man is Murat, and we had a real good time with him. Real good brother, real good brother. His parents divorced before he was born, so he never met his dad. His mom passed away when he was in the 8th grade, so he never went to high school. Starting 8th grade, he worked full-time to support his family. And all his life, he wanted to see his dad. So when he became an adult, he went looking for his dad. He finally found his dad, married again with another woman, at a small settlement. When he found him, uh, they went to get his dad, and he was waiting for him at his house. He expected his dad to welcome him and embrace him, but his dad was afraid, maybe that he was angry, that he had come to maybe even kill him. And so when they first met, he, he told us he was really excited, and he wanted to see his dad's eyes and embrace him, but his dad wouldn't even look him in the, in the eye, would not even touch him. He would not even extend his hand to shake his hand. He said, I waited for my dad to touch me, but he didn't. After that, I didn't want to live. If my own dad didn't care for me, who will? He began to read the Quran, and he became a Muslim, and he was a mullah of his mosque as well. Several months later, he realized he was not satisfied. Quran didn't have the answers for him. And two men visited him and gave him a Bible. He visited later a Baptist church. That is where he became a believer. He said he was in the back of the church where he repented. And he said, I cannot say how joyous I was after I became a believer. God told me that your dad and relatives don't care for you, but I care for you. He said, I want to be a pastor. I'm afraid because it is such a great responsibility. But I want to serve God. I want to be used by God. Well, what, what right hearts for Christians, whether in Kazakhstan, whether in Czech Republic, Ireland, or the United States of America, that should be the heart of every Christian man or Christian woman. And hearing their testimonies, every person, I mean, we heard their testimonies. It was like a 30-minute docudrama. It was amazing what these men had gone through and how God saved them. And I believe the key, a key reason for their single-mindedness to be used by God is their right view of their utter depravity and helplessness in sin before their salvation. They were destitute. They were homeless. They were in prison. They were without hope. And coming from that kind of background, when they were saved, their life was rubbish. 
The life was excellent compared to knowing and serving Christ. And so, as believers, they only wanted one thing, to serve God and to make Him known. That is the only thing they truly care about. Well, for most of us, we don't have the privilege of such a background. Most of us, we didn't come from such difficult backgrounds. We don't have such a dramatic testimony from where God saved us. Therefore, it is all the more important that we know sound doctrine. It is that much more important that we know with clarity the truth of Scripture concerning our own depravity in the sight of God before God saved us. We need to know accurately. We need to know, well, how unworthy we were of salvation. Know well the valley of our own sinfulness. And from that valley, see the beauty of God's mercy in saving us. We need more grace than these men. If we are to rise above our affluent culture, rise above our comfort-driven driven society, much more so than these men, we need to know Scripture. Know these few, these few precious truths from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And that is what has motivated our study, and we are closing it out this morning. Our six truths from John, chapter 10. This is our motivation. In Christianity in America, there is this trend towards intellectual snobbery. Or we come to church and we want to learn new truths, new insights. We want to accumulate knowledge. We think godliness is reading a lot of books, knowing a lot of verses, going to a lot of Bible studies, knowing Greek and Hebrew, knowing the, the theological lingo. And we have this mindset of godliness by how much you know. But that's not where it's at. For the very last time, let me quote to you from Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says, quote, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world, the people that are used by God, are not the people who have mastered many things, but they are those who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ, you don't have to have good looks, you don't have to be rich, come from a nice family, or go to a nice school. Instead, all you need to do is to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them. And quote. I agree with Piper. And my experience in Kazakhstan affirms that even more. It's not about how much you know, but it's how much of you is captive to the few simple glorious truths of Scripture. So with that motivation, we've studied through the 
Gospel of John, chapter 10, for the past several weeks. And we've learned six of these majestic truths that I believe if you were to give your life over to them, and based upon that, see yourself rightly, God will use you. You will be useful for God. God will use you and you will make an impact for His kingdom, whether as a housewife, whether as a student, whether as a full-time worker, whether as a pastor, whatever you do, God will use you. Let's review briefly those six truths, or five truths. We'll study the six today. The first truth is that there are only two kinds of people in this world. Christ said, you are not my sheep, my sheep, they follow me. By that, Christ taught us in the whole world. All other categories do not matter. Kazakhs, Russians, Igors, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, whatever. Those categories, men, women, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, those categories are meaningless in the sight of God. The only category that God sees in the world are just two categories. My sheep and those that do not belong to my sheep. Christians and non-Christians. Children of the light, children of darkness. Those who are for Christ, those who are against Christ. The wheat and the tares. That's it. Those two categories are the only categories that matter. The second truth. It's also from that verse. My sheep. Christ, our Lord, rightly calls Christians mine. Because Christians, as Christians, we belong to Him. We are His possessions. We are His. Why? Because He chose us. We did not choose Him. He chose us. Not only that, He purchased us, not with perishable things, to silver or gold, but with His life. He gave His life to redeem us. He redeemed us, purchased us. He ransomed us from death that He might be, we might be His possessions. And thirdly, because the Father, God the Father, the Lord of the harvest, Matthew 20, Matthew 11, He gave the elect to Christ His Son as a gift because of His love for the Son. Therefore, Christians belong to Christ. Second truth. Third, the watershed doctrine. The watershed truth is a doctrine of unconditional election. He turns to Pharisees and he said, the reason you don't believe is, is because you are not my sheep. And he turned to his sheep, his people, and he said, the reason my sheep believe is because they belong to me. The reason for their faith is their election. And so we see the doctrine of unconditional election. In that terminology, we need to focus on the adjective, not the noun. The emphasis in the scripture is the unconditionality of our election. God saved us not because of anything we did. Right, Titus 3, 5, 2 Timothy 1, 9. He saved us because of his own grace, because of his own mercy. Right? You know, our election as sinners, as unworthy sinners, doesn't make us special. It makes God special, right? Like, I mean, I'll beg to differ. I would say, we're not choice meat. We're rotten meat. Right? We're kind of meat with maggots all over. And we're, I mean, it's just disgusting. And nobody would choose us. They would throw us in the trash heap because we're so filled with sin. But God chose us. And He loved us. And He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. 
Therefore, our election doesn't make us special. It makes God special. It makes His grace, His mercy, His kindness shine. That's the third truth. And the fourth, the most controversial, the most rejected truth, the cornerstone. This is the truth that that is just, you know, we're just praying that God would um, increase in the hearts of believers here at Cornerstone is that Christians obey Christ. Right, John 10, 27, my sheep, they know my voice, they follow me. Right, fish swim, birds fly, and I memorize this by now. Right, and what, what do Christians do? Christians, not perfectly, but what do Christians do? Christians obey Christ. That's what Christians do. My sheep, they follow me. It's like moth to a flame. There's this attraction that Christians have. God has changed our hearts. God has changed our desires. Before we became Christians, our hearts gravitated towards rebellion. We hated the law of God. We hated spiritual things. There was a visceral response to the truth of God's word. But when God saved us, it was completely the opposite. There was a visceral attraction to prayer to worship, to the Word of God, to Christ Himself. And that is why Christians obey Christ. The direction of a Christian's heart has been changed forever. And the fifth truth we studied last time we were at John 10 was the doctrine of eternal security. Christ said, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And He said, My Father is greater than all. He's my Father. He's the one. And he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Believers, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Remember our study in Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Well, today is the sixth and final truth. I believe it is the foundational truth. It is the truth about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If this is not true, then all the preceding truths are not truths, they're lies. If this truth is not a truth, then all of Christianity is a farce. The Bible is just a book of lies. We are to be pitied among all men. Our faith is rubbish. We should run away from Christ. This is the foundational truth. And what is it? It is the truth that Jesus is one with God, that Jesus is God. That our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is co-equal with the Father. That He is God in all ways. The fullness of deity dwells in Him. It is the truth that He is one, uniquely one with God the Father along with the Holy Spirit. Now, any student of the Bible will be quick to understand that the Bible is about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole Bible, the theme, the running theme is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, if I were to sum it up in one sentence, the Old Testament points to Christ, prepares His people for the coming of Christ. The Gospels, one sentence, Christ is here. Acts is the message of Christ to the world, history of that. The epistles is the theology of Christ. The book of Revelation 
is the glorious return of Christ. In all of the scriptures, I would say, arguably, John 10.30 is a handful of those texts that are on the height of scripture because it declares the true glory of our Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation, that he is one with God the Father. To go through our text this morning, a simple, straightforward outline, just three points. First of all, the claim of Jesus' deity, verse 30. Claim of Jesus' deity. Verses 31 through 39, the confirmation of Jesus' deity. Verses 40 through 42, the confession of Jesus' deity. Claim, confirmation, and concession. Let's go to the first one, verse 30, the claim of Jesus' deity, verse 30. Our Lord closes out his discourse by declaring, once for all, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now that word one, its meaning has two aspects, two senses. First of all, it is one, Jesus is one with the Father in terms of will. In terms of will. Now look at the context. Christ says, I'm not a hired hand. I'm not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're not good shepherds. They only care about themselves. When the wolf comes, they run away. I care for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my sheep. I hold my sheep in my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father as well. He holds them in his right hand. No one can snatch them. And then he concludes by saying, I and the father are one. Meaning the shepherd and the owner are one. They have the same love for the flock. They have the same concern for the flock. They have same loving care for the flock. They're one. They're united in their will for the security of the believer. That's the immediate context. It assures that there is not this uh, disagreement within the Godhead. There isn't this division of will. Christ is not holding the flock against the Father's wishes. It is the united will of the triune Godhead. The Christians have security in their salvation. Secondly, and more importantly, this oneness points to, the, to their unity in essence, to their unity in their nature. Our Lord is saying, I am one in essence, one in nature with God the Father. And we understand clearly this is what Christ meant. Because that's how the Pharisees interpreted it. The Jews understood, to get verse 33, that he was making himself equal to God. They understood Christ very well. That this claim to equality with God, oneness with God, was Christ claiming to be God himself. And so the Jews here understood what the Jehovah Witnesses don't understand, what the Mormons do not understand, they understood that Jesus claimed to be God. 
And our Lord, He didn't deny that. He didn't say, oh, you know what? You guys are misunderstanding me. I'm not claiming to be God. I'm just claiming to be in the same sphere, same arena as God. No. He didn't in any way deny their understanding of His claim. And then verse 30, look again. Our Lord said, I and the Father are one. If you have King James Version, it reads, I and my Father are one. All other translations, like New American Standard, New International Version, the English Standard Version, correctly renders this verse, I and the Father are one. The difference between these two translations is an important one. When our Lord says, my Father, He's talking about their relationship. When Christ says, the Father, He's talking about position. So when He says, I and the Father are one, He's talking, He's saying that He is in the same position as the Father. Co-equal with God. Let me quote to you um, Dr. John Brown's commentary on this passage. It is somewhat lengthy, but it is worth our attention. Dr. Brown writes, quote, Harmony of will and design is not merely the thing spoken of here, but harmony of union of power and nature. The thing spoken of here is essence and power. One in what? One unquestionably in the essence and the power and authority of Christ. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. These two are one in nature, in perfection, and glory. End quote. Well, as soon as our Lord declared His equality with God the Father, the Jews had an immediate, again, visceral response. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. A very common response to Christ's teachings. In John 8.58, if you remember when Christ said, Before Abraham I am, what did they do? They picked up stones. Right? The word picked up stones is different than the word used here in John 10 and John 8. In John 8, there were more of a rural area. There were stones lying around. They picked up stones where they stoned at him. The word used here in John 10 is they carry stones. Why? They were at Solomon's portico within the temple walls. You know, they don't have the place of prayer, place of official business. They don't have stones lying around in this place. So what did the Pharisees do? They went outside and they were carrying stones in to stone Christ. Stoning was the usual method of capital punishment in ancient Israel. There were various reasons for stoning uh, according to the Old Testament, um, if you consulted with magicians, if you went to a, a palm reader, or te- you, read, you, know, someone, you had someone read your cards, or uh, you know, predict your future, you'd be stoned. If you broke the Sabbath, number tw- Numbers 23 says you'd be stoned. If you worship false gods, Deuteronomy 13. If you rebelled against your parents, right? Deuteronomy 21, I don't remember that one later on, uh, you were stoned. Well, adultery was a reason for stoning, and one last one, the most important one, was blasphemy. 
They accused Christ of blasphemy, and they're about to execute him. And this is a frightful exhibition of human depravity. Christ had done no sin. He was completely holy. In fact, Isaiah 52.5, and Paul quotes this in Romans 2.24. He says that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And who is he talking about? He's talking about the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders. Your conduct, your hypocrisy, your sinfulness is causing God's name to be blasphemed throughout the world. Right? These are the men who are blaspheming God. Christ, on the other hand, was holy, was righteous, was perfect. He had done no harm, no sin, and yet they were attempting to persecute him, to murder him by stoning him. Our Lord responds by saying in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then in verses 31 through 39, we see the confirmation of Jesus' deity. Our Lord gives them a twofold defense of his deity. And it is very interesting. First one is very interesting. Second one is very straightforward. The first one is very interesting. Twofold is first is scriptural and second is experiential. Scriptural and experiential. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, he say of him the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now these Pharisees are attempting to murder him based on a technicality because Jesus is in a sense calling himself God. So our Lord responds by appealing to scripture. And then he says in verse 35, an important principle for all of us, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. He appeals to the Word of God to point out their inconsistency in, a, in their application, their understanding of the Word of God and the application of the Word of God. He, say, he says, The authority of the Scripture is final. It cannot be set aside. So first of all, it shows us that our Lord had and has a high view of the Scriptures. And as he quotes from Psalm 82, it tells us that Jesus did write hermeneutics, that he interpreted the Bible literally, grammatically, historically, that our Lord did a word study in Psalm 82, 1 and 6 on the word Elohim, and by his understanding of the Old Testament use of this word Elohim, uh, reveals the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. you got to get that, right? Okay, we'll, we'll go through it step by step. I mean, it is, it is amazing what Christ does here. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 82, a psalm by Asaph. Right? 
In verse 1, it speaks of God holding divine counsel in Israel. And God calls the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, the men that stand as leaders above Israel, He calls them Elohim. Verse 1, God has taken His place in the divine council in the midst of the gods He holds judgment. This psalm clearly calls these men gods. Look down in verse 6. I say you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like any prince. So these are clearly men, but God calls them gods. So our Lord is, our Lord's defense is, if men like this, and they're plain vanilla men, they're not, they're like thrifty, the Saban ice cream men, right, plain vanilla, they're not Ghirardelli's or Haagen-Dazs, right, they're plain vanilla men who, who did the work of God, of judging Israel, representing God's law before the land, and God called them gods, and scripture cannot be broken, this is the word of God. The Word of God is inerrant, infallible, sufficient, the authority. And this is what God's Word says. Then how can you accuse me of blasphemy when I have been set apart by God, consecrated by God, sent by God to do His will, and I call myself Son of God? Our Lord could use many arguments defend his deity, but he appeals to scripture. I think for many reasons, but a clear reason is to show us the authority of the word of God. That God's word cannot be broken. God's word is true. And to use the scripture to expose their hypocrisy and their misunderstanding of the word of God. See, they had they had um, exalted their oral tradition, the teaching of the rabbis, and, were, and they were trying to murder Christ based upon their interpretation of the law, not the law, and Christ is no, above even your traditions, above even your oral teachings, stands the word of God, and based on God's word which cannot be broken, I have not committed blasphemy. The first defense is scriptural defense. The second one, is the one I think we will like much more because this is the real issue, the experiential defense. The real issue is, can I back up my claim that I am the Son of God? I talk is cheap. Anybody can say that the Son of God, but can I back it up? Can I live this life? And he said in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. I'm not. Don't believe me. Throw that stone. I condemn you to death. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that I am the Father I want. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Um... Here it says, verse 37, the works of my father, the Greek word, Taras. 
Let's do a quick um, definition of a miracle. Just to understand the significance of what Christ is saying here. Um, I ought to uh, pay some kind of money to Yahoo.com because I get so many illustrations from them. Um, that's my opening webpage. And a few, a few days ago, weeks ago, I don't know if you guys saw it, there's an Indian man who was 68 years old claimed that he, he had, for 68 years, never um, ate, drank, or relieved himself. Did you guys see that? Well, you know me, I got a click on that link. <laughs> I don't know what this is all about. So his name is Palaj Johnny. Actually, he's 76 years old. He said a deity visited him when he was 8 years old. And he claimed that for 68 years, he never ate, he never drank, he never relieved himself. Right? So he went to a doctor in India, and they observed him for 10 days. at a close look at camera, and apparently... He didn't eat, and he didn't drink, and apparently he didn't relieve himself either. And he offered his explanation. He said he was blessed by a deity. He has the elixir of life, and he wanted to go to NASA because he thinks that his feet could come in handy for astronauts. And that was the whole link. Well, is that a miracle? You know? I mean, that's kind of interesting. Why is that a miracle? Right, David Blaine who stands on a glass cage in, in London and goes 44 days without food. Is that a miracle? Is that interesting? Like, what does this mean? What does this prove? Like, is that what Christ did when he came on earth? You know, he did some fancy things and showed himself as above mere mortals? No, the gospel uses three words to describe the works of Christ. The first word is unimus. It's the idea of supernatural power. And everybody knows this. It's where we get dynamite from, right? <laughs> right? Meaning he has power and authority above nature. The second word that is used is terasa. And it speaks of the effect. Terasa speaks of the wonderment of the event. The effect that Christ's miracles um, produced in the people that saw it. That's why it's called... Parasa is always used with signs in the gospel, signs and wonders. When with Christ performed the miracle, it was wonderful. It was amazing. It was spectacular to everybody who saw it. And the third word that is used is Simeon, which means sign. The word that John uses in his gospel, meaning his miracles, they were a sign to something. They're pointing something out. So the definition of a miracle would be that it is a wonderful and significant event, Tarasa, which requires the working of a supernatural agent, dunamis, right, suspended laws of nature, and it is performed for the purpose of authenticating the messenger or the message purpose of authenticating the message or the messenger. And in fact, you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, all the human agents that performed miracles, the purpose of the miracles was to authenticate the messenger and the message. You look at Moses, how will they know I'm speaking for you? Well, take the staff. I will work miracles through you and they will know that I have sent you. What about Elijah? 
What about all the prophets? Jesus Christ, apostles, the miracles they performed authenticated the fact that God had sent them and that their message was from God. And for three years for Christ's ministry, Christ performed Dunamis. He performed Teresa. He performed Simeon. And they weren't just spectacular works onto itself. He performed miracles of mercy and help. Go up to verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. NIV has great works, great miracles. No, that's the wrong translation. The word there is Colossus. Remember Agathos and Colossus? Agathos is the moral good. Colossus is the beautiful. It's the attractive good. And that's what Christ is saying. I worked many Colossus miracles when I was with you. For which of these things are you stoning me? Can't you see these things point to my deity? He performed Colossus miracles. Uh, last week, my second week in Kazakhstan, someone emailed me saying Elizabeth had a flu and she was very ill. I came back and she was ill for at least three, four days longer and she had a 104 fever. Um, for, uh, worst sickness she's ever had in her 19 month life. And uh, she was coughing so hard she had lost her voice and it hurt so much that every time she coughed she would tear and she would cry. Man, as a father, my heart ached. Every time she cried, oh my, my heart ached. And we can't, like, you know, I, I would pay like, I don't know, I wouldn't, but like 10 Michaels, you know what I mean? Like, you can't do this with a child, you can't. And she was a poor child. So our, our, our handcuffs, she had 104 fever, and we prayed for her health, prayed for her to gain strength, and we felt so helpless. Even this past week, Bob, she was sharing about the funeral of the four-year-old girl. And my wife and I were there. And every single person, it's the worst thing to see a small casket. I mean, it's the saddest thing in the world. And every believer that was there at that funeral were all praying, God, raise her from the dead. Bring her back to her parents. Her parents are mourning here. Will you bring, the, bring her back and grant them joy and happiness again? Well, that is what Jesus did. When Christ came on earth, he didn't go in a box and not eat for 44 days. Right, he didn't, for 68 years, not relieve himself. Now, what is that? What is, how does that show the mercy and grace of God? You know what Christ did? For three years, he worked good miracles, colossal miracles. In John chapter 4, just sit back and listen to these miracles. In John chapter 4, there was a nobleman's son who was at the brink of death. He came pleading to Christ, heal my son. You know what Christ did? Your son is healed. In Mark chapter 1, Peter's mother-in-law was in her deathbed. Christ restored her health. In Mark chapter 1, there was a man who was leprous, who was living outside the city walls in a cave. Christ touched him and he was cleansed from his leprosy. In Mark 2, these friends who had pity upon their friend lowered him from the top of the roof as paralytic the lap of Christ. Christ healed them, forgave them his sins. He went walking out the front door. In John chapter 5, the man was paralyzed in the pool of Bethesda. He was healed. 
In Luke 6, the man with a withered hand, he couldn't work for his family. Christ healed him. In Luke 7, the centurion servant. In, in, in Luke 7 as well, there was a widow who had one son, and he, was, and he died. She was helpless. She had no one to support her. Christ raised him from the grave. In Mark chapter 5, the, the Gadarean demoniac, who had all these demons, he was living in, in a cemetery. Christ gave him his sound mind back. Right? Matthew 9, the woman who was bleeding, touched his cloak and she was healed. Luke 8, Jairus' daughter was dead. They were grie- grieving over at her funeral. Christ raised her from the grave. Matthew 9, two blind men, he gave them sight. In John 9, there was a man who was born blind. Never in the history of Israel, they ever heard of someone who was born blind gaining sight. Christ gave him sight. And then in John 11, we'll study next week, Lazarus was dead for four days. And Christ raised him from the grave. Remember Matthew 11? John the Baptist was in prison, about to be beheaded. And he wasn't sure because Christ was talking about suffering and dying on the cross. So he sent the disciples to Christ and said, Are you the one? Was I mistaken? Is there another Messiah to come? Are you the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament? Jesus replied, Go back and tell John this. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached the poor. John 5.36 The people, he said, I have testimony concerning me greater than John. The works that I do, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. John 10.25 They said, will you tell us if you are the Christ? And Christ said, I did tell you. You do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Acts 2.22, that's what Peter said. He said, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. He was accredited by God. How? By his miracles. By his wonders. By his signs. That's what Christ is saying. Scripturally, I'm not committing blasphemy. But not only that, look at my good works. Look at the miracles that I'm performing. These are neon signs that point to my deity. He was proclaiming the gospel to them. Well, what is their response? Verse 39, they sought to arrest him. The depravity of man. All the darkness that is in the heart of man without Christ. Instead of being being in awe of Christ's mercy, grace, and power. They want to murder him. They want to kill him. But Christ escaped from their hands. Well, final point, verses 40 through 42, the confession of Jesus' deity. He went away again, across Jordan, to the place where John had been baptized at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in there. Jerusalem rejected Christ, but in the wilderness, there were people whose hearts were humbled and ready, prepared to receive Christ. 
to trust in Christ. Oh, what is your heart this morning? What is your heart towards these five truths? Two categories of people in the world. Christians belong to Christ. Unconditional election. Christians obey Christ. Doctrine of eternal security. And the doctrine of Christ's deity. What is your heart? You're either one or the other. You want to either murder Christ or you want to trust in Christ. There is no middle ground. Again, I exhort, as your pastor, I exhort you, give your lives over to these simple truths, simple glorious truths, and God will use you. You will be useful for God. Whether you're a housewife, college student, junior high student, you're a full-time worker, whether you're a pastor, whether you're just young in the faith, maybe week old as a believer, you submit your heart to these truths. Be set on fire for them. God will use you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for these precious truths. Scripture that cannot be broken. The Scripture that is truth, inerrant, infallible, sufficient. Our authority as believers and the authority over all the world. And the Scripture tells us that the world does not see your glory because the God of this age has blinded them. We know and believe. The Scripture teaches the salvation is of the Lord. That you grant sight to the blind. Lord, we pray that there are, if there are anyone here whose eyes are closed, the beauty and the glory of Christ this morning, Lord, you would open their eyes. You open their eyes of, the, of faith to see Christ as he truly is. And then you would grant them faith to believe, faith to repent, and faith to trust in you for their sins. Lord, we pray for those who are part of the flock. We pray. Lord, that these truths will take root in our hearts and do a transforming work. Scripture cannot be broken, and may that be true in our lives. As these scriptures are sown in our hearts, may they rule and reign in us, giving us a great passion to be used by you, and because of these truths, that we would be used by you. We um, seek just to honor you, God, by our lives, Maybe aspire to do so day by day. We um, exalt you, Lord, as co-equal with God the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.